What is up, you bitches? Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show today. The show today. The show today. All right. Um, Jake Uger is really making a splash. He indeed decided to run for Congress, and um, we're going to cover that in a second. He's shattering all fundraising records. It's ridiculous. Uh, we also have the goofballs on CNN gave us some top-notch commentary. And by top-notch commentary, I mean the worst commentary you've ever heard about politics in your life. Donald Trump may have had a health scare. The president may have had a health scare. I want to give you – that story is fascinating to me. i got a little video for you, um, among some other things. So it's a jam-packed show today. Later on, we'll get into Elizabeth Warren's new Medicare for All flop, Tulsi Gabbard's as well. So we're all over the place. Michael Bloomberg, stop and frisk. Um, <clears throat> it is wall to wall. So without further ado, let's get started and let's jump into it. Jake Uger indeed decided to run for Congress. The last time we spoke about this, it was um, a little bit up in the air. He had registered the website name, but he didn't announce that he was indeed doing it. Now he has announced that he's indeed running for Congress. It's in California's 25th district. That's uh, Katie Hill's district. I'm sure all of you at this point know the story of Katie Hill and what happened and how she was thrown under the bus and how you know she was caught basically being into some kinky sex stuff. Um, well, Jenk has jumped in. Ro Khanna has already endorsed him. Their other progressive leaders have endorsed him as well. Interestingly enough, um, there are establishment Democrats in the race as well. So it's not a foregone conclusion that he wins. Um, it's a, there are a lot of people running for this seat. And in all seriousness, this is a little bit of an experiment. It's a little bit of an experiment, not just the idea of like, okay, a new media star running for office, but it's also an ideological experiment because, you know, we've maintained for a long time on this show, and I think the evidence to this point does bear out what we've been saying, 
that uh, the idea of having to run to the center in a purple district, and that's what this is, this is a purple district, the idea of having to do that is bogus because we've had a Democratic Party that operates under that philosophy for decades now, and um, they've been obliterated. Donald Trump beat them under Obama and Pelosi and Schumer. The Democrats lost 1,000 seats. The way you get power and maintain power is by actually serving the people. The way you serve the people is by implementing left policies, and then you keep doing it, and you don't lose. This is what happened with FDR. This is why Republicans were like, wow, we should probably uh, do term limits or something because this guy can't lose because the last time we had a social Democrat in power, couldn't lose. So uh, it's, a, it's an important race for that reason. But then there's you know, other issues, which are the intangibles of somebody like Cenk Uger running. He's basically given every opponent of his endless attack ads if they want to use it because he's been talking online for such a long time. And you could always go back to 2010 and find something he said that's politically incorrect and go, ah, see, bad person. And I'm sure that's what they're going to do. And in fact, when Cenk Uger launched his congressional bid, what he did is uh, he pulled a little bit of an M&M in 8 Mile where he let everybody know all of his flaws up front and addressed them so that now it's much more politically impotent when other people try to bring it up to him. Because he can say, I already brought that up, and I already spoke about it, and I'm, I'm an open book. I'm an open book. So the personal flaws are all there. You know, he spoke about his past of uh, denying the Armenian genocide when he was younger. He now believes in the Armenian genocide. He basically says, listen, I was brainwashed to only know the Turkish perspective, and now that I've grown up and I've learned more, I realize that that's dead wrong and that that's ridiculous. Um, he brought up his old blogs, which, of course, were used in the past against him, the old blogs where he was basically trying to be a politically incorrect conservative, and um, he wrote some things that, if you take them out of context, they look really gross, but... He says, hey, listen, that was out of context. This is what I meant. I was joking around or this or that or whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, hey, listen, this is why for such a long time I've always been on the side of political incorrectness because we've all said things, we've all done things that are personally embarrassing or wrong. And you have to believe in evolution and you have to believe in growth and people – are not who they were when they were 18 forever. I mean, the overwhelming majority of people have gone through an immature phase, have believed stupid things. I mean, Jank also admits that when he was younger, he had a conspiracy that he didn't believe in mold. <laughs> he didn't believe in mold. What does that even mean? He thought like, oh, you know, you could will yourself out if you get sick from mold. Like, oh, you could will yourself out of it. It's not... It's something that, you know, you could override with the power of your mind. <laughs> In many ways, that reminds me of my dad, because I remember my dad telling me a story that when he was, uh, when he was, I don't know, maybe 30 or something like that, he, had, he got his wisdom teeth taken out, and they gave him painkillers, or a prescription for painkillers. And he was like, I'm good, I don't need that. And his thinking was like, no, I'll just like, if I start feeling the pain, I'll just like will myself out of that, and I'll be fine. I'll just, you know, white knuckle it and get through. And then, of course, he collapsed in the middle of his job at his workplace. And he's like, I need the painkillers. Oh, my God. Because, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, your mind, mind over matter is not always a thing. Like, 
with something, sure, you could say mind over matter is a thing, but when it comes to, like, physical pain, when it comes to diseases, it's not a thing. That's ridiculous. But anyway, this is a, this is a long, convoluted way of uh, me saying he told everybody all of the, the stupid things he said, stupid things he's done, stupid things he's believed up front, just to be an open book and to let everybody know, hey, here's what they're going to try to hit me with. Here's the personal scandals or whatever that I've had. And um, then he goes on to say, but here's all the things I'm for politically. And, of course, his number one thing is ending the corruption, getting money out of politics, um, calling a spade a spade, saying that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are deeply corrupt, and he's not going to be like that. So he's going to fight on that front. He's going to fight on Medicare for all. He's going to fight on free college. He's going to fight on a living wage and a Green New Deal. He laid it all out in a segment that he did. In fact, it was a couple segments that they released. Now editorial control of the show is uh, all Anna's. He can still come on as a guest, but he can't have editorial control of the show. Um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And, um, you know, if he runs a strong populist campaign, he can win. The only question mark in my mind is what's the income level of the, of the district? Because that's something so for me, I've, al I've always thought about, and by the way, I'm not doing it. I'm just saying it's a thought that I've had of like, what if I ran in New York? Let's say I ran for Senate in New York. Again, I'm not doing it. I'm just giving it as a hypothetical example here. Um, where would I win? Where would I lose? What would my strategy be? Well, I already know my strategy would be to go to the low-income areas of the city in New York City and go to upstate New York, where, again, it's relatively lower income. The area where I 100% would not win is Westchester County. <laughs> I would not win in Westchester County. Why? It's a higher income area. So no matter what I do, my populism, my brand of left-wing populism would not sell at all in Westchester County. That message would just flop on its face because the, the one characteristic of a, a district that flat out rejects populism is a higher income district. Okay. So as long as it's lower income, it doesn't matter if it's right-leaning, it doesn't matter if it's left-leaning, it doesn't matter if it's a very white district, it doesn't matter if it's a minority district. As long as it's lower income, middle to lower income, then that message of populism sells really well, and it's across partisan lines. Okay, so that'll be the big question. I don't know off the top of my head what the income level of his district is, um, but that'll, that'll determine a lot here. Because he's, he's a swashbuckling left-wing populist. And if the district is middle to lower income, I think people will be surprised as to how well he does. Um, and it's also a matter of, you know, I would advise Jenk, you can't, he's a bomb thrower too, and you can't, like, go after Republicans, full stop. No, because, again, it's a purple district. So if anything, you want to win a lot of, some of their votes over. So if you want to go after establishment Republicans, D.C. Republicans, corrupt Republicans, that's totally fine. But you always have to be clear that I'm not talking about your average Joe voter. I'm going to fight for your average Joe voter, even if they're on the right. So, and that's an important thing. It's a distinction that he has to draw if he wants to have a chance, especially in a purple district, because you have to fight for everybody. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he does. I'm really looking forward to it. And to this point, 
Now, granted, it's early on, and I could give a thousand caveats here as to how much of an indication this is as to how he'll actually do in the special election. But to this point, what are we? He announced like three days ago. He launched like three days ago. You know how much money he's raised? $333,140 from 11,201 donors. They had an original goal of $200,000 in the first, like, two or three days, I think. He's at $333,140. So this is real. This is real as a heart attack. And what the establishment Democrats don't understand is, yeah, we get it. You have your little club. You have your little clique. You know, certain people are allowed in. Certain people aren't allowed in. What you don't understand is this dude spent decades getting a giant following online of real people. So you have the money. You have the corporations. You have the insider knowledge, the lobbyists, the strategists. He has the people. It's a fascinating experiment. If Jank Uger gets into Congress, it's a game changer because he will set the narrative. Even, even when you look at somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, it's still like a half the time she wants to play nice and be nice with Pelosi and have Pelosi be nice to her and not, you know, have like an all-out civil war where she's like, you're wrong, Nancy, and I'm correct. She doesn't want to do that. She's a freshman congressperson. It's almost like she knows what's expected of her. And she does, don't get me wrong, she's wonderful and she does buck, you know, narratives and trends and she's phenomenally popular because she bucks narratives and trends and she fights for people. But there is still an element of like, mm, can't we all just get along and unite with the Democrats? Whereas Cenk is not interested in uniting. <laughs> He's not interested in uniting. He's interested in uniting with the people. He's interested in uniting around policy positions that everybody wants, policy positions that will improve everybody's life. He is not interested in getting along with Pelosi at all, at all. So, man, I hope he wins. I really hope he wins. So I'll leave, um, I'll leave the link to his, uh, his fundraising below if you're interested. Uh, just, you know, give him a small dollar donation, like Bernie Sanders style. And let's see how far this goes. Let's see how good it is. And what I'm waiting for now is, the media to try to destroy him. The media will throw everything they can at him. By the way, so-called lefty media, they're not going to like him because they're not actually lefty. They're establishment democratic. Um, and right-wing media, of course, as well. Daily Caller, I saw already had an article, Jake Uger had sexual rules for women. <laughs> Have you ever watched The Young Turks? Do you know that the, him and Anna, and you know, even prior to Anna, before she was even there, um, they literally, like, ranked the top ten hottest whatever. Like, they, they did all these things. I mean, yes, it, it's, a, it's an attack dog's dream to go back and watch all the Young Turk stuff to try to find little nuggets you could take out of context or things you could say, oh, scandalous. But when he's wearing it on his sleeve and he's saying, yeah, I said it, who cares? It's going to be hard to actually use it against him. So... We'll see what happens, but uh, this is absolutely fascinating. Okay. Next. Mm-mm-mm. 
Okay, SE Cup. CNN's Chris Saliza and SE Cup commented on the future of the Republican Party. And um, this video, more than any other really, highlights how out of touch they are with modern politics and how little they know. So when we think about the Republican Party post-Trump, it presumes that Donald Trump goes away in some way, which he may not. So what does that do? Let's say Trump sticks around and tweets. What does that do to the Republican Party as it tries to remake itself? When you look back at big shakeups to the parties, um, you have to wonder and look back at what got them out of those shakeups. And there is one school of thought that it will take a Democrat to unite Republicans again right. around. And, and there's, I think there's a lot of truth to that because when I, you know, I'm a never-Trump conservative, no plans on voting for Trump, didn't before. But when I watch some of the Democratic debates, mm-hmm. I am reminded, oh, right, I don't also believe not a Democrat. Right, <laughs> right. Right, right. And sometimes, you know, it, it kind of takes a reminder, especially seeing all of them kind of outleft each other. So that's full of thought that it will take a far left, maybe progressive Democrat to unite Republicans around their core values again. That's a popular one. Others think it will take a sort of Mitt Romney kind of figure, a moderate Republican, to bring us back and say this is not who we are, uh, we should eschew this, and we should remember what our principles were. And remember, they're just dormant. They don't go away. Conservatism is a set of values. Mm-hmm. still exists. <laughs> Somewhere in the right. ether, but but it, it is dormant, and so it's not like those values are gone. They're just the, the people with the loudest voices just aren't really uh, talking about them as much. Essie Cup, thank you. Thank you. So good thank to be on. Here's my big takeaway from that: Essie's point that the Republican Party isn't dead as she knows it; it's just dormant. Parties move in cycles, and yes, this is a very odd cycle for the Republican Party. But the old-fashioned Republican Party still exists. It's a question of when it will make its comeback. Not really if. Based on what? Based on what? He gave zero facts, zero actual information, and just, you know, just proclaimed something. Okay, but you need to actually back up what you're saying. You think that that's the case. Okay, listen, for this to be a serious analysis, wouldn't you have to, like, do an actual breakdown as to what the, the Trumpian Republican Party believes versus what the establishment Republican Party believes? Like, you would actually need to compare what they're fighting for in order to have a serious conversation about this. They don't do that at all, not even a little bit. They don't even try. So I got bad news for you guys. The establishment Democratic, uh, excuse me, the establishment Republican Party is the Trumpian Republican Party. It is. Look at what they're actually fighting for. Look at what they're actually doing. Maybe there are minor differences around the edges, but by and large, we're still an empire. We're still bombing all over the place. We're still doing tax cuts for the rich. We're still doing deregulation. Trump is the establishment's wet dream. He is. He really is. The only thing that they don't like about him is the mean tweets. That's it. That's the only thing they don't like. And um, if he could just reel it in a little bit, just 
take it a couple notches down, just lower the volume a tad, stop going after people personally, and just pretend to be presidential, they would love him even more than they love Ronald Reagan. And I mean that. I absolutely mean that. So it's really weird that like, they seem so convinced that there's this major difference between Trumpian Republicans and establishment Republicans. They're just the same thing with an attitude adjustment. There's the same underlying philosophy. So these guys, I mean, they're, they're the worst, man. They're so overpaid. They're such hacks. They don't know anything. Um, by the way, the idea that, like, oh, a Mitt Romney-type Republican will come along and make, you know, let everybody know this is not who we are. It's not like there hasn't been tonally those kinds of candidates around. Trump curb-stomped all of them in the 2016 primary. Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, John Kasich, all these people represent more of that philosophy, and Trump destroyed them. So because he just takes it to its logical conclusion. Like when you have, you know, somebody like uh, Mitt Romney say, well, we believe in self-deportation, like, basically, that means make it as bad as humanly possible for immigrants here so that they, they want to leave the country. And then you have Trump just take that to his logical conclusion of, how about we just build a wall and don't let any of them in? Like, well, what do you, what do you expect? You guys have laid the groundwork and, and used the – he just took, got rid of the dog whistle and made it a human whistle. That's it. <laughs> so it's so funny that they pretend like, oh, they're so different, a Trumpian Republican versus an establishment Republican. They're not different. They're not different. He just takes the mask off. And then the other thing is they have a very, like, end-of-history analysis going on here. It's like the Republican Party is the Republican Party of John McCain and Mitt Romney, and even tonally it, it'll always revert back to that. But why? Why are you so convinced that that's like, oh, that's the end of history of the Republican Party, and anything that goes beyond that is a deviation from it, and eventually it'll revert back? Politics is fluid, guys. It's not stagnant. Politics is always evolving and changing and growing. And um, like right now, the growth is all the same policies as the establishment Republicans, plus an attitude adjustment where they're much meaner and in your face. That's what happened. And by the way, you could also thank Fox News. You could also thank Rush Limbaugh for this becoming the dominant strain of ideology and attitude in the Republican Party. Um, And then finally, I'll say, She's so biased. She, she's in her own little bubble Etsy cup because she's like, oh, I watch the Democratic debates and I think, well, they're so, so far left. I'm reminded I'm not a Democrat. And she says it'll take a far left Democrat, basically, to unite Republicans. My response to that is it's actually the exact opposite. If you have an odious establishment Democrat, that is more likely to unite Republicans against Democrats. If you have a so-called far left Democrat that's actually going to chip away, bring in new voters, bring in independent voters, bring in right-leaning voters, bring in a bunch of Republicans as well. Why? It's the populism, stupid. So people, they won't, they won't look at Bernie Sanders and be like, oh, he's so far left, I'm scared of him. They'll look at Bernie Sanders and be like, oh, he sounds like he's going to fight for me and like he's honest, even though I might not agree with him on some points, I would definitely vote for that guy over you know, a, a cold-blooded Republican who's not going to go nearly as far as Bernie is. So it's the exact opposite. It would, it would unite people around that Democratic candidate if it's a far-left Democratic candidate because those ideas, those policies are really populist. So, I mean, virtually on every single point, 
they're wrong. <laughs> and there's like the thing that's so frustrating, guys, is it's such a lazy analysis too. It's like they're not even trying. They're not even trying. Yeah, Trump is an anomaly, and everything will revert back to what it was before because that's because that's the the environment that you're in. You're in an environment where everybody's fake polite to each other. You're in an environment where everybody's wealthy. So like, you know, those are the things that that rub you the wrong way about Trump is, oh, my God, the mean tweets, how dare he? Oh, So you think, like, oh, this has to be an anomaly. This has to be something extra. But obviously we'll go back to the party of, you know, the Mitt Romneys and the John McCains. And, yeah, and all those guys got destroyed because it turns out people hate the establishment of both parties because they haven't been doing anything for them. They've been screwing them for decades now. But they, they can't tap into that anger. They don't know what's actually going on out there. I, I mean... Overpaid hacks is all I have to say about this. Okay. Next. Okay, President Trump and a potential health scare. President Trump may have had a health scare over the weekend. This is quite a story. Now, I will say up front, this hasn't been verified by multiple sources, but there's one source which I'll give you more information on this source, and it leads me to believe this source is legit, okay? But beyond that, there are just things that don't add up which lead me to believe this is definitely a health scare. Something happened, and he had to go to the hospital. So first, let me play a little uh, you know, CNN clip for you here. Sanjay Gupta weighs in at some point in this clip, and then I'll come back and give you more uh, specific information about who the source is and more. President uh, heading to uh, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center uh, to undergo his annual physical exam a little bit early, according to the White House. In previous years, uh, he's done it in January or in February the past two years. But what is more unusual uh, today is the fact that it was unannounced. Reporters traveling with the president were under direction not to report the movement until they arrived uh, at, Nash at Walter Reed. Um, and in previous years, this has actually been publicly announced. It's been on his public schedule the day before, um, announced by the White House ahead of time. So uh, a little bit strange uh, circumstances. Uh, the White House has declined to say if there's any other issue at play here, instead directing us uh, to the statement from the White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham saying that anticipating a very busy 2020, the president is taking advantage of a free weekend here in Washington to begin portions of his routine annual physical exam at Wall Street. So again, according to the White House here, all this is is the president getting uh, ahead of things here, anticipating a busy year next year. Anna. Jeremy, stand by. Let me bring in Dr. Sanjay Gupta. As we hear Jeremy's reporting, very little information, uh, Dr. Gupta, about all of this. But again, nine months ago was his last physical. Previous two have been announced ahead of time. 
this is coming on a day in which he just sort of jetted off and we're all left to wonder what, what, what's going on and only finding out after the fact that that's where he was headed. What are your thoughts about how this has transpired and what, you know, we should expect coming out of this? Yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's definitely a, a bit curious. I, I would like to know, uh, did the medical team at Walter Reed, have they been planning for this, you know, planning for a presidential visit to Walter Reed? process, as Jeremy mentioned, uh, or did they know far ahead of time as they usually do, or were they sort of told about it today? That would be an important question to know. It's unusual in that it's early, you know. Uh, typically, uh, it's a yearly physical. Uh, there's many routine tests that can be done at the White House. So if he's going to Walter Reed, what were the specific tests, uh, things like scanning, uh, you know, those, those types of things uh, can be done at Walter Reed that maybe can't be done at the White House. We know he has a common form of heart disease. Was there a, a particular test that was being done for that? Or, you know, was he having some sort of symptoms? Uh, you know, nothing, n nobody is suggesting that he had any kind of symptoms. But if someone goes into the hospital a few months early, uh, you know, I think that would be a reasonable question to ask as well. But I'd really like to know, when did, when did the medical team at Walter Reed, who would, again, usually spend a lot of time preparing for this sort of thing, when did they, when did they know about this? And, and, again, we don't have the answer to that question right now. Heavy.com reported the following. Trump chest discomfort claim after Walter Reed visit. Whoa. So Andrew Vernon is the source, and he said, breaking news, sources tell me from Walter Reed the president was being checked out for chest discomfort. No other information is available at this time. So the obvious question is, who's this Andrew Vernon guy? Well, Vernon used to work at the VA in the position of coordinator and cardiopulmonary rehabilitation therapist with the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Service. So he would know people who are there. That's what that means. That means that he would know people who are there. He would have sources there. Now, is it a guy who just randomly decided to make this claim, this allegation? I think that's pretty unlikely, to be honest with you. Now, one of the things that I think the right will use to combat this idea is that this guy, Andrew Vernon, when you go through more of his stuff, he's a, he's a Bernie Sanders supporter. But when I look at that, my thought process is more of like, oh, then I believe him more. <laughs> Why? Because if he's a Bernie Sanders supporter, he's like spending his time thinking about like raising the minimum wage and Medicare for all. He's not going to come up with some fake accusation against the president. So if anything, that leads me to believe him more. Um, now, Trump came out because he saw that this news got out a little bit in some places. By the way, almost all the major outlets are, like, not talking about this at all. Okay, by the way, nothing on his schedule today, nothing on his schedule tomorrow either, Trump. That's a little curious, too. Um, but Trump said, visited a great family of a young man under major surgery at the amazing Walter Reed Medical Center. Those were truly some of the best doctors anywhere in the world. Also began phase one of my yearly physical. Everything very good. Great. We'll compete, complete next year. A lot of people pointed out, well, hold on, man. There's no such thing as portions of your, <laughs> portions of your annual exam. No, when you have an annual exam, you go and you knock it out in one shot. That's it. Completed portions of my annual exam, and other people have pointed out, Hey, the time differentiation, he usually has his physical in February or January. 
and um, we're in November. I mean, there are a bunch of questions here. He's also a 70-some-odd-year-old man who's overweight, and there's plenty of evidence to suggest that he does uppers, some amphetamine-type thing, whether it's the U.K. version of Sudafed or whether it's Adderall. He does some sort of uppers. He's a 70-some-odd-year-old man. He's fat. He loves fast food. They, Sanjay Gupta said his, his records show that he does have a version of heart disease, which is nothing if you have it under control and you take your medicine and all that stuff. But is it possible that he had chest discomfort? Is it possible that he went to the hospital for that? Absolutely, especially because, guys, for most issues that a president would face, most common thing, there's a medical facility in the White House, of course. So for him to go to Walter Reed means it could have been serious. Whatever he was feeling could have been serious. And we know how untruthful he is and how, like, he will, the last thing dude would tell you is the truth. He'll give you a thousand lies before he gives you the truth. And would this be something that he would want to hide? Yes. He's Donald Trump. Of course he'd want to hide it. Because he wants to project this, this vision of himself as, like, you know, almost like superhuman. And in many ways, by the way, it kind of worked <laughs> because I've even said it like, oh, my God, he has so much energy. He's 70 some odd years old. He's going to rallies all over the place. Like, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how you do it. Same with, I don't know how Bernie does it either. I mean, these guys are amazing. These guys are incredible. But yeah, like he is human and uh, he's subject to the same laws of nature that you and I are. So who knows what happened here, but. I had to share with you because I find a lot of this stuff curious, a lot of this stuff fascinating. Now, it is possible that, you know, I think I think a likely scenario is maybe he was experiencing chest discomfort and he went there and they said, okay, they did tests on him or whatever. And they're like, okay, but it's not a heart attack, so that's good. But maybe it was something from stress or whatever. Like maybe it was something that turned out not to be the worst case scenario, which is a heart attack. That's possible, too. But let's just say I personally don't believe what they're saying, what the Trump White House is saying, because I do think that they would definitely try to cover something like this up. So anyway, there you go. There are the facts. You make up your own mind. And we'll see what happens moving forward, because he, again, has nothing on his schedule today, nothing on his schedule tomorrow. So we'll see the next time we see him in public and what updated story they give here, because this certainly isn't making sense. Okay. Next. We are going to make fun of Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban went on Fox Business Network, and um, he made, like, a peak horseshoe theory comparison. Take a look. Because the other day, Bernie Sanders says it, it, there should be no billionaires. Yeah. There should be. I mean, 
what do we want? Do we want the billionaires to go to Europe, to go to China? I mean, already Look, we're I'm not leaving. No matter how much you tax me, I'm not leaving this country, right? <laughs> but so I don't care. But he's immoral for billionaires. Yeah, look, everybody's getting very Trumpian these days, right? You, Donald Trump was brilliant at picking, at looking at his base and saying, what group of people are they not going to care about that I can pick on? Now Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have picked up that skill, right? Mm. And they said, billionaires, but, you know, our base... Let's throw them under the yeah. bus because no one's going to stand up and support them. So, you know, Elizabeth Warren is is playing the, is becoming very Trumpian, and she's taking a big page out of the Trump playbook. Saying we're going to tax billionaires slightly more than we already do is akin to Donald Trump targeting Muslims and targeting immigrants. That's the claim. That's the claim here from Mark Cuban. My response to that is, come on, dog. Come on, man. It's the old, like, pity the oppressed billionaire routine. Did you know there were billionaires on TV crying within the past couple weeks? Crying. Crying. This is how they react to a wealth tax. By the way, Bernie's wealth tax and Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, billionaires still remain billionaires. I know that Bernie tweeted like there should be no such thing as billionaires, but just so you know, his wealth tax proposal allows billionaires to still be multi-billionaires, just so you know. So he's actually not doing a 100% tax on all net worth above a billion dollars. Just so you know, because I feel like that's an important fact to put out there. But these guys have this deep, profound victim complex. This idea that like they're under assault, they're under attack. Let me explain something to you. Under no proposal that has ever existed in American history, would you not be okay? And also, as I've said a thousand times on this show, and I'll say a thousand times more, we don't live in a meritocracy. Now, Mark Cuban, to his credit, at a different part in this clip that you didn't see, does say, like, hey, I got a little lucky to have all the money I have. He says, yeah, all his hard work and all that stuff, that's true, too, but I also got lucky. So then... Mark, you understand that if it works that way, if you got a little lucky as well, that also works the other way, that there are people in this country who work two jobs or three jobs. There are people in this country who are trying desperately to make ends meet, and they can't pay the bills. And I've said it before. There are some people, some of the hardest working people I ever met live at or below the poverty line. That doesn't make sense to me. That means that system is broken. That means it's a failed system. When you have half of workers in this country making $30,000 a year or less, when you have 78% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, that's not a them problem. That's not an individual problem. That's a systemic problem, especially when we have a situation where three, three people have more wealth than the bottom half of Americans combined. Did you hear me? Three people have more wealth than the bottom half of Americans combined. Bill Gates, I think Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos, those three together have more than half of Americans combined. They didn't just work hard. That's not, it's not like, ooh, they made it in a system that makes perfect sense. No, it's actually a ridiculous system, and the rules are rigged in favor of the rich and against regular people. And the whole point of Bernie Sanders is to come along and say, hey, how about we unrig the rules and actually make it a hell of a lot more fair than it is and make it actually make sense? Guys, just so you know, just so everybody understands, and he, keeps, he brought up Elizabeth Warren more times than Bernie, Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax is 2% on wealth above $50 million. 2% on wealth above $50 million. 
it is unfathomable that anybody would complain about that at all. <laughs> An all wealth over $50 million. Oh, my God. They're such crybabies. They're such crybabies. Donald Trump looks at marginalized communities and viciously and ruthlessly puts them down and wants to use public policy against them. That's what Donald Trump does. When he says a total and complete shutdown of Muslims coming into this country, that's a bigoted policy. That's actual oppression. It's saying to a billion people, none of you are welcome here because Al-Qaeda exists. I don't care that they're 0.00001% of your group. You're all roughly the same. You're all roughly the same. Ah, some Turkish grandmother and an Al-Qaeda fighter, same thing. Total and complete shutdown of Muslims. That's deep bigotry and intolerance. When Elizabeth Warren says a 2% tax on net worth above $50 million, that's not bigotry. That's not intolerance. That's intelligence. Same with Bernie's, and Bernie's goes a little bit further, and of course it's the plan that I prefer because it goes a little bit further. But it's still, you know, when you look at the grand scheme of things, it's still pretty kind to billionaires. So uh, it says a lot that that's, like, that's peak horseshoe theory right there. Oh, the far left and the far right are the same because, you know, the right wants to not allow in immigrants and ban all Muslims from coming to the country, and the left wants to, like, tax billionaires slightly more so we can provide people with health care and education and a decent life. Those aren't remotely the same. In fact, they're polar opposites. Okay. We go from Mark Cuban to Michael Bloomberg. Now that Michael Bloomberg is running for president, um, he has a lot of strategizing he has to do because nobody likes him. A lot of people don't even know who he is, um, and he really has next to no chance. So, you know, we had a meeting with his uh, advisors, and they said to him in no uncertain terms, you're out of step with the times at the moment. Um, When you champion stop and frisk as mayor of New York City, everybody knows that that's a bigoted policy. Everybody knows that it doesn't work. Um, and you're going to have to say, I didn't, I, I don't believe in that, and I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Now, understand, not only did he defend the policy, he vociferously defended the policy, and he would malign anybody who disagreed with him. And he famously said, if anything, this uh, policy is, it's not bigoted against the minority communities in the city, it's bigoted against white people. <laughs> because a slightly higher percentage then the percentage of whites that commit crime were stop and frisk. It was still way overwhelmingly um, minority communities, but it was like slightly higher percentage of whites than the percentage of whites that commit crime. So he said, um, if anything is bigoted against whites, how dare you accuse me of you know, implementing a, a, a terrible policy here? So here's the video of him knowing that this is a politically untenable position in the year 2019, (laughs) apologizing in as fake a way as he could possibly do. Because I know he doesn't believe what he's saying, but nonetheless, here's his apology. Over time, I've come to understand something that I long struggled to admit to myself. 
I got something important wrong. I got something important really wrong. I didn't understand that back then, the full impact that stops were having on the black and Latino communities. I was totally focused on saving lives, but as we know, good intentions aren't good enough. Now hindsight is 2020, but as crime continued to come down as we reduced stops, and as it continued to come down during the next administration, to its credit, I now see that we could and should have acted sooner and acted faster to cut the stops. I wish we had. I'm sorry that we didn't. But I can't change history. However, today, I want you to know that I realized back then I was wrong. And I'm sorry. That is so pathetic to me. Honestly, I'd have more respect for him if he doubled down on his wrongness. I would. Because this is sheer political calculation. This is, I want to be president. I don't think I can be president if I say the thing I really believe. So I'll just say the opposite. There is the amazing thing watching all these billionaires hop in the race, whether it was Howard Schultz originally, and now he slowly backed out because he was embarrassing himself, Tom Steyer, Steyer, uh, Michael Bloomberg. So many of these candidates, they are so transparent, guys. They really fundamentally believe in nothing other than calling themselves president. And that's the grossest thing to me. I look at a guy like Bernie. I don't even think Bernie really wants to be president, but I think he feels like he has to be because the country is so destroyed and he knows how to fix it. So he's like, fine, I'll do it. But you look at these other people. Oh, my God. Michael Bloomberg. So I just want to give you more information on stop and frisk. According to a report from the Attorney General's office, get this, just 1.5% of all stop and frisk arrests resulted in jail or a prison sentence. 0.1% led to a conviction for a violent crime or possession of a weapon. That is wild. That means 99.9% of stops were fundamentally useless. Because I don't care about if you catch somebody with weed or whatever it might be. Let them go. Let them go. That's not a crime to me. They didn't do anything wrong. They're not a danger to society, so on and so forth. You're just bothering somebody who's minding their business. 0.1% led to a conviction for a violent crime or possession of a weapon. 99.9% failure rate. And, by the way, a court ruled six years ago, oh, this violates the Fourth Amendment. Because you have a Fourth Amendment protection from unreasonable search and seizure, and it turns out, that when a cop randomly selects you on the street and says, let me pat you down, that's an unreasonable search and seizure. That means you are not free in your own city. So court ruled against it. It violates civil liberties. It violates the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And when they scrapped it, crime continued to drop. See, the original claim they made was, oh, it definitely works because crime is dropping as we do our stop and frisks. That's the claim that they made. Well, then when they stopped doing it and crime continued to drop, they had to go, oh. So obviously that wasn't the operative factor that led to the crime dropping. By the way, even if it did technically work and make it go down, which it didn't, but even if it did, it's still unconstitutional, and you shouldn't do it. (laughs) Because you can't do it, because that's the whole point of having a constitution. It takes things off the table, and something that's off the table is an unreasonable search and seizure, and that's what this is. So Michael Bloomberg is, he's the worst of the worst. Believes in nothing, 
just wants to become president, willing to say anything and do anything in order to get into that office. Him and his advisors realized it's politically untenable that I was a champion of stop and frisk. So now I'm going to go out there and, and grovel and say, please, uh, yeah, please still vote for me. Nobody's going to vote for you anyway, bro. Nobody's going to vote for you anyway. And I- I'm also waiting. Do the minimum wage next. Go. Let's see. Because his position is just as unpopular on the minimum wage. 80% of the country wants to raise the minimum wage. He doesn't. So please, do the minimum wage next. Come on. I'm so sorry. I believe in 5 for 15 now. <laughs> please, do it. Do it. Do, uh, what, what about big gulps? I'm sorry I banned soda because I want to be your daddy as, as mayor. <laughs> Go, please do that. Do that. You should have a smaller size of soda. You should have a smaller size of soda. Why? Because I think you should. I think you should. So I'm going to make that the law. How about that? I'm going to make it the law. You need a smaller soda. Smaller soda. Who does that? Like, you want to you talk about, like, giving a bad name. That's like the nanny state Democrat argument that the right uses and he's just a perfect embodiment of that stereotype i, I want to tell you exactly what you kind of can't do with your body that's what i'm gonna do <laughs> what a weirdo and by the way he used to be a republican i should say ran as a republican then became an independent now he's becoming a democrat why you don't agree with that the democratic base on anything you're not gonna fight for medicare for all you're not gonna fight for free college you keep compared medicare for all to giving everybody a free pony so you're not gonna you don't agree with us on anything what are you doing what are you doing Guys, he's drunk on his own money. He's like, I'm a billionaire. I'm a ge-. He really thinks like, oh, I'm a super genius, which is why I have all this money. It is a meritocracy, so I'm a super genius, and everybody's going to defer to my super genius hobbit mind. No, but we're not going to do that, and you don't agree with us on anything, so stop embarrassing yourself. It's hilarious to me that this guy actually jumped in the race. He actually thinks he has a chance. I mean, the only thing that's good about it is the entertainment value and the fact that he's helping split the centrist vote more, which helps. Bernie Sanders. All right, Obama done did it again. Let's do this one, and then we'll take a quick break. Didn't have any breakfast yet today, so I might be having a, a mid-show bagel or something. But don't worry, y'all. I could eat super fast. It's actually kind of disgusting. <laughs> All right, here we go. President Obama spoke with wealthy donors this week, and... Um, he sure did show his true colors. See, that's when, when their real thoughts come out, when they speak to wealthy liberal donors. That's his people. You know, the first time that Obama was in the news cycle when he left office was what? Wall Street speeches. I forget exactly how much he got paid, somewhere between 400000 and 600000 a pop. He was giving Wall Street speeches. You want to know why he was giving those Wall Street speeches? Because he had friends on Wall Street. You want to know why he has friends on Wall Street? Because he bailed them out to the tune of $14 trillion. And he didn't prosecute any bankers. So even though at the beginning they were acting like, oh my God, why don't be so hard on us. Oh, you've twisted our arm. In reality, they recognize now after the fact, oh, oh, he kind of let us get away with quite a bit. So um, he's talking to liberal donors. The truth comes out. And here's what he says about this election and the left. He said, quote, this is still a country 
that is less revolutionary than it is interested in improvement. The average American doesn't think we have to completely tear down the system and remake it. Voters, including Democrats, are not driven by the same views that are reflected on certain left-leaning Twitter feeds or the activist wing of our party. And that's not a criticism to the activist wing. Yes, it is. Their job is to poke and prod and text and inspire and motivate, but the candidate's job, whoever that ends up being, is to get elected. I think it is very important to all the candidates who are running at every level to pay some attention to where voters actually are and how they think about their lives. And I don't think we should be deluded into thinking that the resistance to certain approaches to things is simply because voters haven't heard a bold enough proposal. And as soon as they hear a bold enough proposal, that's going to activate them. Because you know what? It turns out people are cautious because they don't have a margin for error. Couldn't be more wrong. Hey, President Obama, Donald Trump is in the White House. You do understand that, right? Donald Trump is in the White House. So when he says, oh, voters are cautious, big, bold proposals, big change, he was the hope and change guy. (laughs) Now he's like, change, change. I don't know about all that. The reason why Donald Trump won is precisely because people were not cautious. They were like, oh my God, I will roll the dice on this absolute maniac because he might actually change stuff. I cannot stand the status quo. I cannot bear another standard status quo establishment politician. That's Hillary. So they didn't go with safe. They didn't go with cautious. They didn't go with the devil they know. They went with the devil they don't know because they said, hey, not a politician, entrepreneur background, seems kind of crazy. I'll roll the dice on him. Maybe he'll actually bring the jobs back. Maybe he'll actually change stuff. This is a direct rebuke, whether or not Obama knows it. This is actually a direct rebuke of his 2008 campaign and his 2012 campaign. Because in his 2008 campaign and in his 2012 campaign, he always campaigned far more progressive than he actually governed. He governed like a Bill Clinton centrist, new Democrat, triangulator. But in terms of his actual campaigns, no, no. He was way to the left of where he was when he was in office. And he would run against the corruption he ran an ad against Mitt Romney that was so devastating that it, it was because Mitt Romney invested in a lot of companies, and some of these companies were literally outsourcing jobs as he was on the campaign trail. And so Obama went and spoke to those people and did an ad, uh, you know, where he's on the side of the workers and saying he's against outsourcing and Mitt Romney's for it. And then the Bain Capital stuff and the 47% Mitt Romney, 47% doesn't want to work. And so he was way more populist on the campaign trail. And now his argument is, whoa, 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 with all this change. You want to know why, guys? Because now Bernie Sanders makes Obama look silly. Because Obama's whole argument now is, well, listen, I mean, I, I wanted to change stuff and I couldn't. So the lesson he takes away from his time in office is, I went for too much change too fast. And that's not possible. So he's got nothing but contempt for others who want to try And by the way, that's not the lesson of his time in office, just so you know. The lesson is not, oh, you were too far left. (laughs) Like, no. The Republicans were against you no matter what you did, period. The establishment Republicans are the worst of the worst. You have to break the will of the establishment Republicans and then also hold your own caucus. Throw around your weight. 
force the Blue Dogs to do what you want to do. So he is, he fundamentally misunderstands Bernie Sanders and even Elizabeth Warren to an extent. When you look at Bernie Sanders, he says, no, I'm going to fight for Medicare for all and I'm not going to stop till I get it. I'm going to fight for free college. I'm not going to stop till I get it. I'm going to eliminate student loan debt. I'm going to do a living wage. I'm going to legalize marijuana. I'm going to free nonviolent drug offenders. And I'm going to do a Green New Deal. He gives this list of policy proposals that he's really serious about and bringing change to the country. And if, let's say, let's say Bernie got just two of those implemented. Let's say he gets Medicare for all and a Green New Deal. That alone dwarfs Obama's legacy. Now, there are good things he did. He, like the Iran deal, for example, wonderful policy. But like that alone would dwarf Obama's legacy. And so he doesn't want to look stupid. He doesn't want to look like, oh, my God, I, didn't get, I only got 10% of the change I could have gotten. So now he's on a gaslighting tour where he's like, oh, God, I mean, these guys are the left, the activist wing of a party. He said left-leaning Twitter feeds. There's a non-zero chance that Obama has seen some of our tweets, and he don't like it. <laughs> we had one that just went viral the other day where, you know, um, and we'll get into it later in the show, but Joe Biden uh, said uh, two administrations, zero convictions, or something like that. And my response was 90% civilian drone death rate. And that thing blew up. I mean, probably one of my biggest tweets ever. And is, is there a chance that that somehow made its way across Obama's feed? I'm sure. I'm sure. It's possible. It's, it's a non-zero chance. Let's say, I don't know what it is, 10%, 15%, whatever it might be. So he might have seen some of our tweets, but definitely seen other left-wing activist tweets, uh, you know, whether it's our revolution people or Justice Democrat people or whatever it might be. And he sees this rising insurgent left-wing tide, and he's trying to stand there and say, no. You're going the wrong direction. Be more status quo-like. Be more centrist. But that's actually not the lesson of his presidency. And we know that that's not the way you win, because if it was the way you win, then Hillary would already be president right now. You wouldn't have an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You wouldn't have an Ilhan Omar. You wouldn't have them. But we do. People, everybody said there's no way we'll get any Justice Democrats elected. You know how many we got elected? Seven. <laughs> So, oh, yeah, yeah, the left is not the way to win. Really? Then why are we doing it? We had no money, no name recognition, no power. We went from zero people to seven people in one election cycle. Thirteen when you include our revolution and and PCCC and other left-wing groups. And uh, 142 Democratic Socialists at the state and local level. Who are you kidding? Of course the way to win is to go left. Of course the way to win is to have bold policy proposals. Uh, You know, it's hilarious to me that this guy, who's not a bad politician, he was a very good politician in terms of getting elected. It's amazing that he doesn't understand that telling people, I'm going to get rid of your student loan debt, is a positive thing. That not only is that good policy, it's good politics. Telling people, oh, nobody should go bankrupt because of medical bills. I'm going to get rid of your medical bills, and I'm going to give you free health care. If you can't sell that notion... You're the dumbest person on the planet. Oh, I think that you're working full-time and you're not making enough money to survive? I'm going to change that. You should make enough money to survive if you work full-time. Who's going to be like, I disagree with that. Well, we know who's going to do it. It's going to be the establishment Republicans. But even like your average Joe Republicans are going to be like, yeah, no, I think you're right. If they work full-time, they should make enough money to survive. So it's, I don't know what it is with Obama. I don't know if it's all corruption 
and he's just totally immersed in that sellout culture now. Or I don't know if he actually believes it. There's a chance he actually believes this now. He believes, like, no, 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 don't go too far left. Uh, you know, this is bad. This won't work. Um, but suffice to say, he's wrong about everything he said there. Every single point is wrong. The way you win is to argue for change, be bold, be aggressive, be specific, be clear, be simple. That's how you win. But somewhere along the way, he lost the plot. And now all he does is gaslight the left flank of the party and bolster the centrists. And I got news for everybody. The, the status quo politicians, the establishment centrists, the corporatists, they are why we have Trump. They are. So um, thanks, but no thanks, Obama. Your political era is over. I get it. You still have a high approval rating. That's true. You want to know why? Because you're likable. You're likable. You're a likable person. It's true. But does that translate into every decision you made was good and every idea you have is, you know, above reproach? No. So, sorry, but your time, Hillary's time, Bill Clinton's time, all the status quo standard politicians, tick-tock, time's running out, and we have an insurgent left, and that's a good thing. Okay, let's take a break. Joe Biden is going to remind us that he's an artifact. Um, We'll have that, and when we come back, there's much more, so don't go anywhere. We will be right back, beach.
bitch. All right, we're back. I'm not gonna lie to y'all. I just had the breakfast of champions. I just had a delicious strawberry bagel. That's actually wait. That sounds misleading. It was a bagel with strawberry cream cheese. Low-key, one of my favorites. If you live in an area with the Dunkin' Donuts, run to Dunkin' Donuts to get that because it is absolutely worth it. Hidden gem is what I'd call it. A hidden gem. So anyway, now that I'm full and incredibly happy, um, we move on to... The man himself, Hansy Uncle Joseph, let's do it. Joe Biden keeps proving that he's an ancient artifact with his terrible takes. So take a look at what Forbes says. Biden says marijuana might be a gateway drug. Bro, it's 2019, dog. It's 2019. I... Former Vice President Joe Biden said on Saturday that he's not sure if marijuana is a gateway drug that leads to the use of other, more dangerous substances. Quote, the truth of the matter is that there's not nearly been enough evidence that has been acquired as to whether or not it is a gateway drug, the 2020 presidential candidate claimed at a town hall meeting in Las Vegas. It's a debate, and I want more before I legalize it nationally. I want to make sure we know a lot more about the science behind it. Uh, First of all, it's not a gateway drug. Second of all, even if it was a gateway drug, I don't care. As a matter of principle, if you wanted to smoke some weed to relax on a Friday night after work, you should be able to do that. What's the big deal? You have to understand something. He is just monumentally, colossally out of touch. I mean, not only is he wrong on the policy substance here, and he is that, he's just, he's stuck in a different political era. Guys, this is why, like, Pete Pete Buttigieg, he keeps doing the whole, like, Medicare for all who want it, and, like, putting a modern spin on the 90s neoliberalism. Biden doesn't even do the spin because he just doesn't understand that times have changed. And so he's out there and he's like, yeah, I would have a public option. And sure, 10 million of people would still be uninsured under my bill, but public options is the way to go. <laughs> what? So, and this is just another example of that. If you're Joe Biden and you have a history with the crime bill, you have a history of being agreeing with Republicans when it comes to policing, being tough on crime kind of guy you should be careful and bend over backwards to be like, oh, oh, that was, you know, at the time it was a different era and now we understand that smoking marijuana is a very similar thing to just having a a glass of beer at the end of the day or some vodka or tequila, whatever it might be. That's legal and marijuana is not. I mean, that is kind of discriminatory. Um, that's also just bad policy. If anything, the alcohol is worse for you than the marijuana so, of course, now, you know, especially being as part of the Obama administration, where Obama pardoned a lot of nonviolent drug offenders at the end of our term together, 
of course, now I understand we can, we can at the very least decriminalize marijuana. No, no, he's, but you know what he does say? At the end, he goes, oh, but if states wanted to do it on their own, okay, fine, I'll let them do it. Well, congratulations, you've evolved to the same position as Chris Christie, who's a notorious, like, anti-drug, anti-marijuana kind of guy. So here we are. The year 2019, the guy who's still leading in some polls, Joe Biden, is stuck in the year 1992. And he's, you know, the way that he casually regurgitates debunked old talking points, the gateway drug, gateway drug my ass. I mean, we saw, is there an argument that maybe cigarettes are a gateway drug? Should we ban those because, you know, uh, hey, that could lead to somebody then having some alcohol, and then alcohol could lead to somebody then having a harder substance or whatever. It's like they only trot out these terrible arguments for the specific substances that are already illegal and the specific substances that they personally don't like. And that I can't stand for. He doesn't think about this stuff in an objective way or a fair way. Um, Since it's not his vice, he goes after it. Really annoying, and reason number 9,742 why he has no business still being in the lead in some polls in this primary. All right, next. Fox Business Network decided to cover the phrase, OK, Boomer, hence this graphic over my shoulder, Um, and it went exactly as you'd expect. Should we say goodbye to any hope that the generations in this country are going to get along? It looks like things have gotten a little testy. Right. So uh, it originally started as an Internet meme, and now it's generational warfare because the phrase, okay, boomer, is uh, getting a lot of uh, fights and controversy online. Now, okay, boomer, it's what my fellow millennials and Gen Zers are saying to baby boomers, saying that, you know, kind of in a sarcastic or snarky manner, like, you don't get us. You guys are old-fashioned. You guys don't get us. Now, there's tons of merchandise out there right now, and it's kind of almost like a a demeaning term to older people. But the boomers aren't happy about it. Whoopi Goldberg went off uh, off on it on The View yesterday. William Shatner got into a whole Twitter argument. And essentially, baby boomers are saying, millennials, you guys are clueless. You wouldn't be able to handle yourselves without us. But on the flip side, it's actually taking more of a serious tone from millennials because they're saying, listen, we have – ton of debt right now, college yeah. is a mess, health insurance, like you left us with nothing, you guys don't get us, climate change, it's a pretty big argument going on right now. A former executive at AARP right. said, okay, millennials, we actually have the money. Right, yeah. So kind of like, you know, yeah. just... Just know where you're at. Well, some of the criticism right. has been fair, though, against the millennial generation for, frankly, the whining. Right. You know, and, and the, I need my safe space at work. What safe space? I mean, you know, life is tough, kids. Yeah, Wake yeah. up. The millennials are the entitled generation. We feel that we should be handed everything. But, uh, okay, boomers. Entitled to the generation under them is just more mindful in general. Anyway, I think it's getting better is what I'm saying. Mike Osman, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Where do I begin with this one? 
Okay, ironically, as they're on Fox News, the Weiner Network, they whine on behalf of billionaires, the least oppressed people in the country. They pretend like they're the most oppressed people in the country. As they're on the Weiner Network, they're like, these millennials and the Gen Zers, the Zoomers, and, and they're whining. They're whining. Yeah, they're, they're, what do you need, a safe space? You need a safe space? Again, here we go. Here we go. with <laughs> It's so tired and it's so played out. Let me ask you a question. What percentage of millennials and uh, Generation Z, what percentage have ever said or used a safe space? Have ever said they needed one or used one? I'll wait. I'm going to guess that that number is infinitesimally tiny. I'm going to guess it's less than 1%. Seriously. Because all, all that stuff is overhyped. You have like this right-wing outrage network that takes fringe examples of that stuff, like the whole safe space and college campus free speech suppression and stuff. They take fringe examples, stuff that almost never happens, and then they, they, they act like it's happening everywhere in the country and it's so bad and all they want is safe spaces and they're so triggered and they hate the microaggressions. It's not as common as you're making it out to be. It's not as common. And again, the irony is they're on like the Weiner network because all they do is whine. Oh, my God, we're so outraged. We're so offended. Fox, that's Fox News 24-7. But they're offended about the things that they think it's okay to be offended about those things in right-wing circles. So to them, it doesn't count as us being offended or us being triggered. So it's just, oh, and oh, you guys are so entitled. The idea that millennials are entitled. No, the reason why so many millennials were, you know, living with their parents longer than perhaps they should have been is because the economy is broken and you broke it. <laughs> like that's what, I, I'm sorry. What do you want me to do? You want to try to find a way to appease you on this and, and coddle your feelings, even though you guys did it? I mean, now, again, not all boomers, not all of the older generation, but yes. There were two wars you put on the frickin' credit card, the national credit card. There was a subprime mortgage crisis and a great recession. The wages have been stagnant since the 1980s. We have automation happening in front of our nose, outsourcing happening in front of our nose. All these problems, people are just trying to find a way to get by and fit in this terrible system. And then when they voice, you know, like, disagreement with it or they're upset about it, you're like, ah, entitled. It's not entitled to say, hey, the system screwed up and you guys shouldn't have done X, Y, and Z, and here's how we fix it. That's not entitled. That's intelligent. God damn it, man. The thing that's so frustrating is, like, they're sitting in their comfy studio all made up. Let's have a conversation about how terrible younger generations are. <laughs> God damn it. Um, and I also laughed when he said Whoopi Goldberg went after the younger generation on The View and says, you know, you're clueless, you can't live without us. <laughs> That's adorable. And um, the best part was when they said, you know, an AARP executive, yeah, because who's more in touch than an AARP executive, came out and said, hey, millennials, you might want to calm down because we have all the money. That's kind of our point. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of what we've been saying. Like, oh, you guys destroyed the economy. Uh, you guys sent us off to wars unnecessarily, and then you rigged the economy in your favor and against us. And, like, we're that's kind of our point. Our point is, wow, you guys have all the money. Well, back when they went to college, when the older generation went to college, it cost 14 cents in a Pop-Tart. 
Now it's like we have $1.2 trillion in student loan debt, and they yell at us because we don't like that. Like, what? <laughs> we have all the money. Yeah, it's kind of the problem. That's kind of part of the problem there now, isn't it? I love how they think that's an argument on their side. Again, this is that older mindset. The older mindset is, oh, no, we already live in a meritocracy. It already is. A, the harder you work, the further you go. So they think they earn this position. That's what, that's what it is. They think, oh, we have all the money because it's, it's as simple as we earned it. We worked hard. You're lazy. End of the conversation. To them, that's, how, that's what it is. Insufferable and unbearable. Stop doing the wars. Stop rigging the economy. Um, and create a system that's not incredibly stupid. Stop destroying the environment. And then maybe, you know, the younger generations will lay off you a little bit. And it does say quite a bit, doesn't it, that like all it took was a little phrase, a little catchy phrase, okay, boomer. That's all it took, and they flipped out. Because, the, again, they're the ones who go, look at younger generation, snowflake, little snowflake, does everything hurt your feelings? Does everything hurt your feelings? And you respond, okay, boomer. Like, oh, this is discrimination. Oh, it's discrimination against the older generations. How could you do this? Let's do. Let's talk about it nonstop and do segments on it on our shitty TV networks. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to have a generational battle. We have enough troubles as is. But there is a very distinct generational divide, by the way. When you look at the older generation, who are their favorite candidates in this Democratic primary? I'm not kidding about this. Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden. That's who the older generation likes. So in other words, the charlatan con men frauds are the ones who they're like, yeah, that's the way to go. People who will change absolutely nothing as they pretend like they're changing stuff. That's the way to go. And of course, the younger generation is totally behind Bernie Sanders. It's not even close. Sprinkle in a little bit of Warren and Yang a little bit as well, maybe a little bit of Tulsi. But younger generation, overwhelmingly Bernie. So it's like, we want actual change they want to pretend like they're woke and for change. Mayor Pete is gay, the first gay president. You want the first gay president? You want the first gay president? He's not going to change anything. <laughs> He's not going to change anything. No, we want actual change. So, but that's like that's the self-importance is the thing that frustrates me about many in the older generation. This like smug sense of how virtuous they are, but you're not, and you kind of screwed everything up. I mean, look at climate change. How you destroy the environment and you act like, you know, you're so holier than thou. How about you guys find your own safe space from when a couple people who are younger say, okay, boomer to you, because it's really not that serious. Okay, next. Elizabeth Warren finally shit the bed. She finally did it. Elizabeth Warren, after all of this time and after all the debates where she rhetorically sided with Bernie against others on the stage on the issue of health care and Medicare for all, she decided to back off of Medicare for all. Now, we covered her specific plan recently. I went through it in great detail. And, um, you know, my overall takeaway from her plan was it's not as good as Bernie. 
it's funded in a more regressive way as she pretends like it's the opposite and says, like, no middle class taxes when it would be a Medicare head tax, which is a, a working class tax, and it is a more regressive tax than Bernie's plan. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I was still happy that she was proposing Medicare for all. The funding was a little off, and there could have been tweaks that were better, but she was proposing Medicare for all. So it was the second best plan that was out there. Um, but now, inexplicably, she's like, well, let me destroy all of the <laughs> all of the good faith I built on the left by not abandoning Medicare for all. Let me destroy all that in one fell swoop. And she did it because she doesn't really believe in Medicare for all, but also to try to um, beat the criticisms from her right flank in the primary away. So absolutely disastrous. Here's what NBC News reports. New Warren plan splits Medicare for all into two bills and preserves private plans at first. Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, released her plan for transitioning the country to a Medicare for all health care system Friday, splitting the effort into two legislative pushes that would happen over her first term in office, but holding off at first on ending the role of private insurance companies. Instead, she would pass legislation to offer new Medicare benefits to everyone first and then follow up with legislation to end existing employer plans by her third year in office once the new system has a foothold. There is so much wrong with this. Okay, so first of all, what you're proposing then for the first three years is just a public option. That's what that is. You're proposing a public option for the first three years. That's what you're doing. And then you said after three years, you're going to come back and pass Medicare for all when you already had a health care battle and presumably you fought tooth and nail to win on just a public option. You're going to come back and fight another health care battle three years later. That is ridiculous. That's not going to happen. That's not even close to what's going to happen. If you're going to fight for Medicare for all, if you're going to fight for, excuse me, a public option, you're probably not even going to get that passed. I don't agree with her strategy, but let's say she does. She will be stuck in that. She'll never get Medicare for all. And I don't even think she really believes in it, or else she wouldn't have released a plan that's this goofy. And the idea is, and this is why she did it, oh, now Joe Biden and Mayor Pete, oh, you can't attack me because I say we're going to give people the choice for three years, and they're going to realize that the government plan is so much better, and then when we eventually go to Medicare for all and the private insurance companies no longer exist in their current form, people are going to be for it. Because I gave them this three-year period where they could experience how good the public option is before we went to Medicare for All. So many problems with this. Okay, if you were to do a public option, by the way, up front, that's not going to be the same as Medicare for All. It's not. It's not. We already know what would happen in a system where you have the private insurance uh, system and the public option coexisting with each other. We already know what's going to happen. We know the private companies are going to try to keep the healthy people. We know they're going to pawn off all the sick people to the government plan. We know that when you have all the sick people going to the government plan, none of the healthy people, the risk pool isn't spread out enough, so the prices are going to go up and the quality is going to go down. We know that this is what's going to happen. So you, a public option is fundamentally not the same thing as a Medicare for all plan. Full stop. It's not the same thing. So when you say, oh, we'll do the public option and then move to a Medicare for All system, and people will realize how good the public option is. But it's not the same thing, and it's not going to be as good as Medicare for All. See, what she's letting everybody know here is, I actually don't have faith that a Medicare for All system will be better than the current 
system we have now. That's She just let the cat out of the bag on that philosophy. Bernie doesn't have to do a weird thing. We're going to do two separate bills, first this and then this, because he knows Medicare for All is going to be better. It's going to work. Everything's covered. It's free at the point of service. So why would he do a weird half measure before he gets to the actual thing? He wouldn't. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. You want to know why? He actually believes in Medicare for All, and he knows it's better. So after all this time, all the debates where she sided with Bernie now, backpedal. The problem with how she funded it was a separate problem. It wasn't nearly as big of a problem as we're seeing now. Now, in no uncertain terms, this is moving away from the Medicare for All system. You're not going to get a public option pass, and then you're not going to get a Medicare for All system three years later. After three years, you're going to fight for Medicare for All? What does that show about priorities, guys? But we already knew this about Elizabeth Warren, is that she doesn't really prioritize this. And if you go back to simpler times when... It, she's more honest about what she believes on this front. She said it. She said it to Jank Uger in the first interview with Jank Uger. She said, um, you know, the, the core, the heart of where all the Democrats are is the same, and it's correct. And that heart is we need to expand health care access. That's a weasel word, by the way. Expand access to health care for, for millions more people. So when she looks at a public option, when she looks at an expansion to the Affordable Care Act, when she looks at Medicare for all who want it, Medicare, Medicare uh, extra. When she looks at all these plans, she goes, hey, that's all good enough. You want to know why? Because this is not on the top of her priority list. She's more, she cares about Wall Street. She cares about monopolies. She cares about trade and taxes. Like, this is what she cares about. This is what she cares about. She doesn't care as much about health care, and she doesn't care about foreign policy. And all the the brownie points she earned by siding with Bernie in those fights on Medicare for all in the debates, gone now. Gone. So this is a clear, make no mistake about it, guys, it's a clear backpedal for cynical reasons, too, because she was going to get into arguments with Mayor Pete and with Joe Biden on the debate stage where they're going to say, I'm preserving choice, and they're not. They're going to make that nonsense argument, and she didn't know how to respond to that. So how does she respond to it? No, no uh, we're, we're going to pass health care reform in two parts, and the first part keeps the choice, and then people are going to see that the right choice is the government, and then we'll, eventually we'll get to Medicare for all. How convoluted and dumb is that? You know how you destroy that talking point? Here, very simple. You're still going to – I'll do it in Bernie's voice. You're still going to have choice. You could always choose your doctor. What we're doing is getting rid of the mafia middleman who's screwing you and price gouging you. That's it. That's all you have to say. No, we are for freedom of choice. You're not. You want to know why I'm for freedom of choice? You could pick your doctor under Medicare for all. You can't even pick it under our current system in many instances. I, me, Kyle, I have, you know, so many doctors around where I live are out of network. So I can't go to a doctor who might be really close to where I live because they don't accept my insurance. So I don't have freedom of choice when it comes to our current system. Medicare for all would give me freedom of choice when it comes to my doctor. But freedom of choice for your insurance company. Nobody likes their insurance company. You want freedom of choice to determine which mafia is ripping you off? You want the Irish mafia or the Italian mafia? You pick. Here, I'm giving you a choice. This is how you fight back against Mayor Pete. She can't come up with that. She can't argue that because she doesn't believe in Medicare for all. Shame on you, Elizabeth Warren. Shame on you. There is only one Bernie Sanders, in case you didn't yet understand that. Okay, next.
Uh-oh, now we got to do the Tulsi Gabbard story. This one also involves health care. Tulsi Gabbard went on Jimmy Dore's show, and she gave some more specifics on her health care plan. She hasn't released, you know, the actual legislation yet, the bill yet, the wording of it. She hasn't released that yet. When she does, obviously, we'll take a look at it, and I'll give you, you know, a, a deeper breakdown. But here she is clarifying her position on Jimmy Dore. Let's watch, and then we'll discuss. not wanting to outlaw private insurance, more like, say, what works in Australia. So right. now I'm very familiar. I've been to Australia. I know how their system works. So do you want to explain how I could help, too? Cause yeah, I mean, really, in a, in a nutshell, it is uh, making sure that through a single-payer plus plan, every single American would, have, would automatically uh, be able to get the care that they need through this plan. Uh, if you also want to purchase a supplementary insurance plan or you've got an employer-sponsored plan or you have something else going on, you have the freedom to do so if you want. But that does not undermine or take away from every single person being able to get uh, the quality care that every single American deserves. And everybody pays it. So yeah, nobody gets to opt out. So That's the way right. it works in Australia, and they call their system Medicare, right. is everybody pays it. Right. And, and so, but you can also then purchase, uh, but when you pay in, you don't get to choose your doctor, but you get to choose your hospital. You get to go to a hospital, you get to get taken care of, but you might have to share a room, and you don't get to choose your doctor. Now, if you buy private insurance on top of that, you're allowed to then also pick your doctor and get a private room, because you're paying more for that thing. That get, so that's the way they run it there. And it seems there. Everybody, when I was, everybody was really happy with their health care, yeah. and they couldn't believe how we did it here yeah. in the United States. So that, to me, is a thousand percent improvement. That certainly is still Medicare for all. It's just a Medicare for all. So the problem it used to be if people kept private insurance was that some people could opt out. You can't have that. Yeah. Everybody has to pay in. Yeah. That's how it works. So Jimmy goes on to say in the segment that. He prefers Bernie's plan, and Bernie's plan is better. Um, but he also says the beauty of Tulsi's plan is it takes away the right-wing talking point on choice, because Tulsi was, wanted to be able to say, no, no, I'm not taking away your freedom of choice, but at the same time, I want to have a single-payer system existing alongside a system that allows you to keep an employer plan, for example, if you want it, or to keep some sort of supplemental insurance if you want it. Um, now, what I would say is, first of all, to the point on choice, there's a much better response to that, which is, I actually just said it in the previous segment, you say, Medicare for all maintains choice. Our current system has no choice, because if you don't go to a doctor that's in network, then you can't go to that doctor. You have to go to a doctor that's in network, and sometimes they're very restrictive with which doctors are in network. Your insurance company really limits your options. Under Medicare for all system, you could always pick your doctor. Now, if you want to talk about choice of a for-profit insurance company, why would you want a choice as to which mafia is ripping you off? I'm going to get rid of the middleman mafia that's robbing you, that's price gouging you, that's stealing your money for no reason and providing nothing. I'm not going to give you a choice of the Irish mafia or the Italian mafia 
or the Jewish mafia. I'm not going to give you a choice of that. No, I'm going to get rid of the mafia because that's, that's what makes sense. So that's a better response to the right-wing talking point on choice. I wouldn't allow a, a for-profit system with duplicative insurance to still exist because they're, they're robbing you. That's fraud. Um, now, here's the problem with her plan. It creates a two-tier system. So Australia's system isn't bad. It's better than what we have. There's no doubt about that, okay? Um, but it does have problems, and it has problems particularly because of the private insurance system. I was just reading a, an article on this the other day, in fact. Um, and The Guardian says more than half of all Australians have private insurance that covers services not taken in by Medicare, including dental, optical, and allied uh, health services such as physiotherapy. So the response to that should be, oh, let's have the Medicare for All system cover those things. Like that's the logical response, in my opinion. You don't go, oh my God, the, the public system is missing X, Y, and Z. Therefore, let's allow a pri private for-profit system to operate alongside it. No, you go, let's just have Medicare for All cover dental, optical, physiotherapy, mental health care. And by the way, Bernie's bill does that. Bernie's bill does that. So that's the logical response. The response isn't like, oh, let's have a, let's have a Medicare for all system. Let's have a single payer system that covers 95% of things. And then that other 5% it doesn't cover, you can get private health insurance for that. No, just have the Medicare for all system cover the 100% of the things it should cover. Like that's the response that I think makes the most sense. So her plan is not as bad as I thought it was but I still definitely prefer Bernie's over, over Tulsi's because Tulsi is not being clear here that like this, this, it sounds like it's not just that she's in favor of supplemental health insurance, private health insurance. It sounds like she's in favor of still allowing duplicative health insurance. And that's a problem because that's a two tier system. And it, we shouldn't have a two-tier system for healthcare. You should get everything should be covered, full stop, full stop. Now, supplemental is fine with me, but supplemental insurance means extra, extra, which means only the things that, that the um, Medicare for All system, single-payer system doesn't cover, you can get extra insurance for. Now, you might say, Kyle, you just said everything should be covered. Correct, but there are always things that exist in a gray area because there's not enough evidence to say that they work, whatever it might be chiropractic, homeopathy, acupuncture, things of that nature. There's no real scientific evidence that says, hey, this really works. It's, it's a treatment full stop. No, a lot of this stuff is alternative medicine and, and variations on that. So if you want to have supplemental extra private insurance for those things, I would totally allow it. But I certainly would not allow any duplicative health, private health insurance because then it's a two-tier system. And whenever it's a two-tier system, we know what's going to happen. We know that the private company is going to do everything they can to, you know, keep the healthy people, pawn the sick ones off to the government system, quality goes down. How many times have we gone over this on the show? Two-tier system is not the way to go at all. And when she says, like, oh, if you want to keep your employer system, uh, employer insurance plan, you should be able to do it, then that means because employer plans 
cover duplicative stuff that a Medicare for All system would cover. So I, I got alarm bells going off when I hear her say that for sure. Now, I will say the, the, the upside of her plan, which makes it not as bad as I thought it was, given previous um, things that she said, is that you can't opt out of paying the taxes for the single-payer plan. And that is true that the difference between her plan and Mayor Pete's plan is Mayor Pete, you know, would let people opt out of the public option. What she's saying is, no, 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 it's going to come out of your taxes no matter what. Your, you know, your single-payer, our single-payer system, our Medicare for all, you are going to have to pay taxes for it, and you can't opt out of it in the same way you can't opt out of paying for taxes for Social Security, for example. So that does make her plan better than the Joe Biden plans and the Kamala Harris and the Mayor Pete plans. But again, I definitely don't think it's as good as Bernie Sanders' plan or Jaya Paul's plan um, because you're allowing duplicative health insurance to exist, and that sets up a two-tiered system. So again, in my mind, I like the Bernie Sanders plan. I like the idea of everything's covered under the Medicare for All system, full stop. And then the only extra stuff is literally supplemental, which is, you know, the things on the fringes, which there's really no evidence for, or plastic surgery, stuff like that, too. If you want to buy extra insurance for that, that's fine. She is talking about going beyond that, and that's something I'm definitely not okay with. Okay. Next. Joe Biden got absolutely dragged on social media for this tweet the other day. Take a look. Two elections, zero criminal convictions. And it's him and Barack Obama standing there. Um, so my response to this was, and not a big deal or anything, bro, but like it went viral, but like whatevs, I don't even care. Um, 90% civilian drone death rate was my response to that. So, yeah, two elections, zero criminal convictions, 90% civilian drone death rate. And uh, that is trying to highlight the idea that he's really blowing himself here, but the fact of the matter is you guys did a lot of stuff that's questionable, to say the least. In fact, there was um, the drone death of uh, Abdul Rahman Al-Alaki. And he's basically the son of this high-level terrorist, 16-year-old son of this high-level terrorist. And when they killed him with a drone, the response from the Obama administration was he should have had a more responsible father. That's what we do now. We murder 16-year-old kids because of the sins of their father. By the way, he was an American, too. So extrajudicial killing of an American citizen because of the crimes of his father giant scandal. Honestly, that that's impeachment worthy. In the same way that I could give you five or six things that are impeachment worthy for Trump, I can give you five or six things for Obama as well. Um, you know, that's not to say that the Obama administration didn't have some good things. They did. 
when Obama was freeing nonviolent drug offenders, many of them at the, the end of his second term. The Iran deal was huge, definitely very positive, one of his best accomplishments. There were a lot of good things, but there were also a lot of terrible things. And the idea that, like, and what, this is what he's getting at, like, oh, we didn't do anything wrong. Actually, you did a lot wrong. <laughs> okay, so that was my response, the 90% civilian drone death rate. Somebody else said, zero convictions of Bush-era war criminals and Wall Street bankers as well. So, yeah, no convictions. That's right. You had no convictions on Wall Street criminals and no convictions on war criminals. Nobody in the Bush administration, none of the torturers, none of the people who did an illegal and offensive war that killed a minimum 200,000 civilians. None of them. So, yeah, no convictions. That's a bad thing. It's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. Um, and Nathan J. Robinson of Current Affairs, by the way, everybody should check out Current Affairs magazine. It's very good. Great lefty magazine. Um, he responded to this and said, we went from hope and change to at least we didn't end up in prison. <laughs> That's a great response. That's such a good response. Obama was all about hope and change. And now, you know, the brag line is no convictions. We didn't end up in prison. And also, for the record, zero convictions doesn't mean zero crimes. Doesn't mean zero crimes. There were a lot of crimes. You could argue the expansion of the NSA apparatus, the government spying on everybody without a warrant, all that's criminal. Some courts have already ruled that that's indeed unconstitutional. So zero convictions does not mean zero crimes. And um, the final point I'll make here about this Biden tweet is, dude, it's not going to work, man, because you're reminding everybody of the past instead of arguing for stuff for the future. And that's the kind of politics that's not going to land in today's day and age. I keep telling you guys. It really is a populist era. It's an anti-establishment era. It's an anti-corruption era. People know they're getting screwed. They're on to the game. So when you come out there as the former vice president and you're like, I was the former vice president and I will bring us back to the past, that's not a powerful message. It's not. People want to go towards the future. There might be some nostalgia around the edges. And to be fair, Obama does have a high approval rating because people like him as a person. Um, but... It's an impotent message next to somebody like a Bernie Sanders who's out there saying nonstop exactly what he's going to give you, exactly the direction we need to move as a country, exactly how we need to look to the future and not towards the past. And Biden doesn't represent that sense of urgency that people in the country are feeling in today's day and age. He just doesn't. And this is his 912th attempt of trying to say, like, see, I was Obama's VP. I was Obama's VP. Yeah, and he still hasn't endorsed you, and he's not going to endorse you. <laughs> so... See, this is the thing that annoys me. It's like these corporate Democrats, they don't have anything substantive to run on, so everything is shortcuts. He's trying to do shortcuts everywhere. Just to, like, uh, now will you make me president? See? Like these little things. It's just like, it's so, it smells of desperation, too. And um, it's disgusting. <laughs> so, anyway, go ahead, Joe. So he's providing quite a bit of material to everybody with his Twitter feed in today's day and age. While we're dunking on Twitter people, 
Let's not stop, baby. We are going to continue to dunk on them. Let's not stop, baby. This guy's name is Richard Engel. He is the NBC News Chief Foreign Policy Correspondent. I want to repeat that. Chief Foreign Correspondent. So very important position, one of the biggest news networks, one of the most important positions in that news network. In one tweet, this guy managed to perfectly expose the deep rot in Washington, D.C., and elite media. And it really goes to show you how childishly naive the worldview of a lot of these people is. And it it really, it's Noam Chomsky manufacturing consent all day long. Because it's like the reason he was hired is because he thinks the way he thinks. So take a look at this. He said, the more I talk to sources, the more I'm hearing America's betrayal of the Kurds and the humiliation, misogynistic squashing of of U.S. ambassador in Ukraine for political motivations makes people think we, Americans, have become the bad guys. Hearing it was a gut punch. So he's referred, the second part there is referring to Yovanovitch, who gave, uh, you know, testimony in the impeachment inquiry and was basically saying, like, the president's bullying me. And then Trump went on Twitter and proceeded to continue to lash out at her. Um, You know, I have to say, I do find it funny and also a little insufferable that, like, Democrats think, oh, we could have this impeachment hearing thing. And, like, he's not allowed to respond. So we get to have an impeachment inquiry and, you know, have witnesses testify. But God forbid Trump responds to some of the things they're saying. They, they do the, again, there's the problem with the Democrats, the old holier-than-thou tap dance. For the, Good sir! Good sir! How could you? We're over here only trying to impeach you and do an inquiry and hear as many bad things about you as possible. And how dare you respond, yeah? It's just so, like, fake. Like, what? You, of course he's going to respond. Obviously he's going to respond. Do you know nothing about this man after all this time? Do you think, like, what? You can hit him with, like, but this is violating the norms. The norms, yes. The norms. <laughs> it's not going to fucking work. Of course it's not going to work. So anyway, but putting that aside, look at this thing, the specific things that Richard Engel references there. So, moving our troops, by the way, we didn't actually leave the region. We're still in Syria. We're just in different parts of Syria. And we moved some troops to western Iraq as well from Syria. But moving our troops, getting them out of the area where the Kurds were. Oh, there's a big scandal. Biggest scandal in American history. And Trump going after somebody who's testifying against him in the impeachment inquiry. These are the two things that in his mind are like, we've crossed the line and we're not going back. What a, what a terrible line we've crossed. Oh, what about the future of our country? Look at these lines. Mean tweets. And moving troops from one region of Syria to another. The responses to that tweet gave me life. A lot of people were just like, really? Because he says, I'm hearing now that people think Americans might be the bad guys. 
hey, dude, wake up, bro. Where have you been? <laughs> and under the Bush administration, we did an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us. We killed a minimum 200,000 civilians. We're permanently occupying that country. We're jacking the oil. We're taking mineral wealth from Afghanistan. We're also in Afghanistan. We went there in 2001. So you do the math. 18 years into the war, we're still there. Look at what we're doing right this second in Venezuela, trying to topple a government because we don't like the government and we want to get our hands on the oil reserves. That's not me speaking. That's John Bolton speaking. John Bolton said it on Fox Business. It'd be great if we get our hands on that oil. Look at We're backing a a coup in Bolivia as we speak. We're trying to topple the Iranian government. We're doing economic warfare on them. We're um, quite literally not allowing in shipments of, of, of medicine to Iran. The, the top court at the UN said you have to allow in medicine. You can't. The International Criminal Court was like, you have to stop, you know, not allowing medicine in. And then we pulled out of the court and chastised the court. And people, some people are dying because they can't get their hands on medicine. In Venezuela, we're seizing shipments of food going in there. The Bush administration started torture, covered up the torture, protected the war criminals, went after the people who were exposing the war crimes. Hello, Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange. And now, Richard Engel, now, uh, what if we're the bad guys because of Trump's mean tweets? And us leaving a very specific region of Syria to go to another region of Syria. You're a child, bro. You're a child. You don't know anything about the world. You don't know anything about U.S. history. And the even sadder thought is maybe you do know about it, and you don't think that those things were bad. Or you totally have fallen hook, line, and sinker for all the propaganda that when America does things like that, seizes shipments of food and medicine, because we believe in freedom and democracy. Democracy! You're embarrassing. You're embarrassing. But see, guys, this is the problem, and this is why you should fear that maybe Trump gets reelected, is because guys like Richard Engel, these are the people who are controlling Democratic strategy against Trump. These are the people. People who are goofy enough to think, like, the biggest scandal ever is that Trump is being mean to somebody testifying an impeachment inquiry against him. Like, to them, you know why, guys? Because to them it crosses a line of, this is somebody else in the club. You can't attack somebody else in the club. It's the same reason why they totally flipped out because, you know, Trump wanted the investigation of the Bidens. And Trump keeps calling out Hunter for taking the money. They're, no, you could do whatever you want. You kill as many brown people as you want, but God forbid you go after anybody in the club. And again, super telling that Richard Engel, it's not like he ever thought maybe we're the bad guys when we illegally invaded places. To him, that's fine. The problem to him was, oh, my God, when we removed some troops. Oh, so the scandal wasn't that we're in Syria in the first place. The scandal isn't that we've been arming and funding jihadists. The scandal is, oh, he moved troops from this area and removed some. No, what a scandal. So I, I hate these people, if you can't tell. I despise these people, if you can't tell. They're deeply unserious, and they're the biggest rubes in the world who believe the most ridiculous, glamorized version of American propaganda about how we're freedom lovers saving everybody around the world. And he, he's a child. He's a child. And again, Noam Chomsky Manufacturing Consent, read that, because that just 
provide some insight into how we get to a point where a guy like Richard Engel is the chief foreign correspondent for NBC News. They would never put a person in that position who actually knows what's going on, knows the dynamic, knows that we're a superpower. They would never do that, ever. Again, I can't say enough negative stuff about this. In that one tweet, he managed to expose like the deeply delusional, insane mindset of somebody who's totally embedded in establishment elite thinking. Okay, so let me take a quick break, and then when we come back, we are going to, I'll give you an update on the coup in Bolivia. That's a really, really important segment. Okay, you're not going to want to miss that. And then also, I want to give you an adorable story about Deval Patrick, who of course just hopped in the uh, Democratic primary race. Yet again, you're going to see the legendary level of disconnect that these establishment politicians have. It is, it's actually quite embarrassing. It's funny, but it's also actually quite embarrassing. So anyway, stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and more.
All right, bitch. We're back. We are back. We are back. Back, 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 bitch. All right, let me um, let me give you another update on the coup in Bolivia. More details, more specifics. I have an absolutely terrifying update for you on the coup in Bolivia to report. Um, This is from a publication called Morning Star, and it's about the self-appointed president of Bolivia, Janine Añez, and She said the following, quote, The personnel of the armed forces who participate in operations for the restoration of order and public stability will be exempt from criminal responsibility when they act in legitimate defense, the decree reads. It also specifies that security forces may use firearms to put down protests. She has given them carte blanche to murder protesters, to use violence, to use force, to stop peaceful protesters. Remember, this is in response to the last update I gave you, um, mentioned how the biggest trade union announced a general strike. And so there's a lot of protesters out there, and the only people backing Um, Janine Añez are the police and the military and so she turned around now and said oh you can do whatever you want to stop the protest whatever you have to do you want to murder people go ahead and murder people it's stunning to me that anybody thought that this wasn't a coup (laughs) when you looked at how it unfolded early on it was crystal clear that that's what was happening that it was a coup I mean, again, the biggest evidence in that direction was when um, Morales came out and said, oh, fine, if you want to have another election, we'll have another election, fine. He had won and won by over 10 percentage points, which meant there wasn't a second round, there wasn't a runoff election. But he said, hey, listen, no problem, let's have another election if you want to have another election. Weird way to steal an election to say, okay, I won, but fine, I'll give you guys a do-over. Weird way to do that, huh? Again, if you wanted to criticize him about, you know, uh, trying to get rid of term limits and then the Supreme Court getting rid of the term limits and you said, hey, if you're president, you should never be in a position where you're sitting president and you're agreeing in principle to get rid of the term limits. I understand that argument. That argument makes sense. But the Supreme Court ruled what it ruled, and he didn't stack the court, unlike what a lot of people are saying. Um The Supreme Court ruled what it ruled. So let's say in the U.S. the Supreme Court ruled, I'm sorry, the term limits are actually unconstitutional and they're undemocratic. If somebody ran for a third term, we wouldn't say, our media wouldn't say, and the people wouldn't say that that's not allowed. We'd say, hey, the Supreme Court ruled what it ruled. That's the law. If he wants to do it, he could do it. She wants to do it, she could do it. But in the case of uh, Bolivia, people use that as this main argument as to why, you know, He's an illegitimate leader in this and that, and that's just nonsense. And, of course, we went over in detail uh, Morales' results as 
president of Brazil, and it was really good. He massively reduced poverty. He massively reduced extreme poverty, increased the minimum wage, kept inflation under control, built a 1,000 clinics and gymnasiums and hospitals and all this stuff. Very good, strong social democratic record. And, um, you know, he's indigenous, and now you have people who are non-indigenous really taking power. And remember, Janine Añez, and we went over the tweets on the last update, she said many anti-indigenous things on Twitter very casually. So um, the other point that I wanted to make is her party also got 4.2% of the vote in the recent elections. So they are like a fringe party, really not popular at all. So the way she's getting power and holding on to power is through force. It's the police and it's the military who have backed her, and I'm sure they have backing from the U.S. government as well. So here we are. And finally, uh, they said, we will prosecute journalists for sedition. So no free speech, no free press, no free protest. And the duly elected leader had to flee from the country. This is 100% a coup. We know it's a coup. When It should have been a big hint to everybody when she was going into the palace holding a freaking giant Bible, saying, finally, the Bible returns to the palace. Because right-wing coups and uh, fundamentalist religion always go hand in hand. And that's exactly what we saw in this instance. Let's just, we'll do one more here, Deval Patrick. This story is adorable. Deval Patrick decided to hop into the Democratic primary, and um, he's already imploding. He's already imploding. He's got a terrible record. Remember, he's a really like the quintessential corporate Democrat. He worked for Bain Capital. Bain Capital, that's the the company, very scandalous company, vulture capitalist Mitt Romney um, was heavily involved with it, and they they harvested companies for a profit. This guy has been running in the worst circles for years now. So take a look at this. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick said he isn't crazy about accepting support from super PACs, but he will as he seeks the Democratic presidential nomination. Asked Sunday on NBC's Meet the Press by host Chuck Todd if he would swear off accepting Super PAC money, Patrick said, we need to do some catch-up, so I think we've got to follow and find all sorts of above-board strategies. The former Bain Capital executive's position on fundraising is sure to make a bid at winning over liberals who have been lukewarm to his late entry in the presidential race even more challenging. Patrick's decision comes uh, after... Former Vice President Joe Biden decided to reverse course last month and accept funding from Super PACs. So just, just so everybody knows, I mean, it's, that's corruption. What they're admitting, what Deval Patrick is admitting and what Biden admitted before is, I can't make it if I'm not corrupt. <laughs> that's what they're saying. I'm, I can't. I can't make it if I'm not corrupt. We know. We know. And we know you won't make it when you are corrupt either. You're going nowhere. But isn't that stunning? And here's the thing, he doesn't, 
I mean, they're so bullheaded and they're so used to being in this ocean of corruption all this time that they don't realize what they're saying. They don't realize how this comes across. They don't realize that the question is actually a lot more serious than you think it is. You think you're just getting asked a question about or where are you going to get your funding from? No, the question is, hey, are you going to be principled and represent the people and raise uh, the small dollar way, or are you going to sell out and have massive influence from industry and billionaires and take their money and then have to do their bidding when you get elected? They don't get that because they're so used to the corruption they think it does. They think, like, what do you mean? This is how it works. I raise money, and then I get an office, and I return favors for people who help me out. And sure, it's big money people. Sure, it's corporations. Sure, it's the rich. So, like, that's... They're so used to it that they don't think anything of it. They just think, what do you mean? This is how it is, and it's never been any different, and it never will be any different. But that's not true. But that's not true. First of all, it wasn't always like this, because we used to have much stricter rules about money in politics. Um, and then it was the late 1970s where the court cases started coming in that eventually totally ruled that money equals free speech. Um, but also, the future is not going to continue to be like this, because people won't stand for it anymore. This is why, one of the main reasons why, we're in a populist and anti-establishment era is because people see the corruption. They know it's corruption, and they're disgusted by it. But Deval Patrick can't help himself. He's like, oh, well, um, you know, I got some catching up to do, so what are you going to do? <laughs> I got some catching up to do, so what do you want to do? That's like saying, yeah, okay, I'm opening a business on this street, but you know what? The competition's really good, so am I going to get some help from the mafia? I mean, I got some catching up to do. I got to be open to all these ideas. <laughs> that's what that's like. Sure, sure, just have the mafia help me and threaten my opponents and, you know, fund me and we'll be all good. <laughs> That's not okay. That's not a thing. So, anyway, this shows how out of touch these guys are. With Joe Biden, it was even more stark because it was, like, quite literally, he was massively lagging behind Bernie Sanders with fundraising. Bernie Sanders raised $30 million in a quarter and Biden raised nine. And so it was like the next day, he was like, yeah, you know, you know the thing I said about not taking super PAC money? Well, if somebody wants to actually make a super PAC for us, what am I going to do? Am I going to tell them no? Is that what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell them no. And so people created super PACs and they're funneling your money. So now, just so you know, you could have just like a handful of rich people fund the entire campaign. Just a handful of rich people. Just have them fund the entire campaign. Now, let me ask you a question. What is Deval Patrick and what is Joe Biden? What are they going to do? What are they going to do when the people who funded their campaign, the handful of billionaires who funded their campaign, when they call them, when they're in the White House? Now, again, they're not getting there, so LOL, but what would they do? You know that they would do favors for them. You understand that that's the nature of the gross business that is politics. But we're trying to change that. And that's why electing Bernie Sanders is so important. Because he's not going to represent billionaires. He's not going to represent money interests. He's going to represent the people. And so that's why, you know, last in 2016, $27 is how much he's, he's raising. That's the average donation. Um, and I don't know what it is this time, but I'm sure it's about that. I'm sure it's about that. So this is who they are. Everybody needs to understand that this is who they are. There is a civil war for the heart of the Democratic Party and the future of the country. And you have rank corporatists, corrupt corporatists on one side, and you have populists fighting for the people on the other side. And from now on, you know, people like to slam purity tests wrong. Don't. A purity test just means you have standards. Now, you know, I might look at your purity test and say, hmm, you go a little too far in it and I don't agree with you. 
that's possible. Like, it's possible to have a purity test, and it's just a bad purity test. Um, but should you have some standards? Should you have some things where you say, I can't bend on this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you should. You should have some things that you can't bend on because you have standards. You're looking for specific things. So a politician needs to represent your interests. Um, and this is one of those things that's like bare minimum basic level stuff. Because even when somebody says, oh, I don't take super PAC money, there's still other kinds of money that are questionable. So like this is step one is like don't take corporate PAC money. Don't take super PAC money. And they're not even passing that first step. I mean, at least politicians like um, Kirsten Gillibrand and there were some others who were not, they're, they're establishment Democrats, but they understood the times better. And so they're like, oh, okay, no corporate PAC money. Now they would still have these big money dinners where individuals give them the max donation from all these different corporations. So they're still corrupt, don't get me wrong. But even they understood, I'm not, you can't do corporate PAC money, you can't do super PAC money. That goes way too far because it's so obviously corruption. Deval Patrick, Joe Biden, missed the memo, don't care. And this explains why, this shows why, this is going to be embarrassing for both of them. Uh, ultimately, they're going to flail particularly Deval Patrick, but even Joe Biden, I really do think he's on borrowed time still. It's a minor miracle he's still leading in some polls. Um, but, yeah, it's embarrassing. It's a new political age, and um, they need to adjust with the times, and they're incapable of doing it. But then on the other hand, we should be thanking them because um, since they're showing their true colors, at least everybody gets the real picture. At least everybody knows, like, oh, okay, so that's who that guy is. Super pack loving, silly corporatist. Got it. Okay. We are done, baby. All right, guys. Love you. Everybody, enjoy the rest of your day. I do not know if there's a Kyle and Corin tomorrow because Corin has been traveling like a mofo, but hopefully we can make it work. Um, because I know he isn't at home now, so maybe, I don't know if he stays there, but let's hope he does for tomorrow. But anyway, love you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a good rest of your day. Peace.